Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. Employee engagement is obviously a big focus for more and more firms. Perkbox is one of the best ways for firms to try and show some recognition for a job well done. There are over 200 exclusive employee benefits on the Perkbox platform. And they cover things like reward and recognition. They cover incentives. There's even healthcare on there. Anyone who's looking to improve the experience of work for their team would certainly find some benefit there. Improving motivation, productivity and staff retention. Find out more at perkbox.com. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Pete. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. I love people getting in touch. This week, uh, yesterday in fact, uh, a guy serving me in Wagamama saw a sticker that I've got on a notebook uh, for the joy of work. He said, I love that book. Have you read it? And the shy little boy inside of me said, no, I hadn't read it. What an idiot. I have no idea why I said that. It's an incredibly kind thing for someone to say. Uh, someone else come, came up to me at a wedding saying she enjoyed the podcast. So uh, I'm blown away with things like that. If anything, I can't deal with praise, but please tell me what you want to hear. I get this sense that people sort of love the documentary feel of the Jurgen Klopp episode. So I'm going to plan a few more of those. I'm really interested in what's happened to the culture at Microsoft, for example. And I'm also doing one that I talked about a while ago, but about WeWork. And I've chatted some people who work in WeWorks. So there's, there's a few good episodes coming up. Uh, some of them are going to look at psychology and neuroscience. Some of them are going to look at sort of the, the way that specific things we do in our work impact us. And today's episode is about meetings. Now, I know all of us feel uh, deeply conflicted about meetings, conflicted where we're balancing a sense of utterly hating meetings and being completely bored by them. Meetings is such a defining part of our job. So as a result, I just wanted to take a look at them. Largely, it was because I had just two incredible guests who I think are going to give you at least two inspiring ways to think about doing your meetings differently. If, like me, you hate meetings, I think this episode will inspire you to try something new. In 2014, Harvard Business Review published an analysis which suggested that we spend on average two days a week in meetings. Interestingly, 80% of that time, they said, was with people in our own department. So meetings and emails are making up an ever-expanding part of our jobs. The volume of communication, they say, has gone up massively in the last three decades. HBR said in the 1970s, the average person received about 1,000 communications per year. In the 1980s, it was 4,000 per year. By the 1990s, it was 9,000 per year. 
But the real takeoff was in the 2000s. We were receiving 25,000 communications a year. And in the 2010s, it was 30,000 communications a year. So if you combine two days a week in meetings and 30,000 communications a year, work for a lot of us has become a bureaucracy. Effectively dealing with messages in and messages out. Meetings in, meetings out. The strange paradox of this is that most of us don't feel more connected with all of these meetings and all of these emails. We feel just like we're in an admin-heavy desk job. So what can any of us do to solve meetings? This episode's got two exceptional experts who are here to shine a light. Firstly, I've got David Gasker. David is a colleague of mine at Twitter, as well as being one of the most intelligent and widely respected employees of Twitter. He's also become a passionate advocate of a new model of meetings, the silent meeting. David's written something that I've linked to on the newsletter and in the show notes of the podcast called the Silent Meeting Manifesto. And he strongly believes that we need to cut out the chat to make our get-togethers work for us. So I begged time of David in his lunch hour last week. And to kick us off, he gave himself a better introduction. My name is David Gaska. I work at Twitter. I'm the product lead for our health efforts. So that's safety abuse, misinformation, court manipulation, and, and some other things. How did you get into it? Firstly, what's the history of silent meetings? I think as far as I can tell, it all started in Amazon. So this was Jeff Bezos. He had something called The Narratives. So it was a six-page doc that outlined a strategy. He outlawed PowerPoints in the mid-2000s because he thought that it diluted nuance. It wasn't a good way of developing strategy. So he forced everyone to write write six-page documents that you'd print out and hand around the table. And then what they found, I, I think, is... Well, when you're reading, you need to read in silence. So people would read the documents. And one of the engineers there, one of the uh, VP of engineering, Alyssa Henry, then moved over to Square. And that's where I first heard about it because my wife worked at Square. And I think from there, Jack Dorsey then saw it and then he moved it over to Twitter. And so a few years ago, I think I first started seeing in various meetings. And since then, sort of expanded it. And, and now that's how we run basically everything. Yeah, because when Jack first came over, I remember a few managers started introducing it and some have stuck to it more than others. We'd, I do my main meeting uh, every week as a silent meeting. And so you've created this manifesto, which is, I guess, trying to demystify the whole process for anyone who's interested. Yeah. So what I found was, so we've been adopting it on Twitter, but, you know, new people join the company and suddenly you throw them into the meeting. And, and, you know, everyone's quiet and they're looking around and saying, like, well, what's, what's happening here? <laughs> uh, what am I supposed to do? How do I make one of these things? And, and it wasn't written down anywhere. It was all more uh, hand-me-down folklore. And so I was like, okay, let's, let's take a step back and write what I wish existed that I could hand to everyone as they joined Twitter to say, hey, here's how we run these meetings. Here's what we've learned. Here's when we do use them and when we don't use them. And you know, try to at least provide a little bit of a guide. Probably the, the one question that will be in anyone's head who's thinking about this would say, well, if you've got no PowerPoint slides and you've got silence, how does a meeting happen? Explain the tools of the trade. Yeah, so there's, there's a few pieces to it. The first is you have a, a table read. So what we call a table read, it's not a pre-read, it's a table read. Pre-reads assume that people are going to read it before. The downside is everyone's busy and what ends up happening is some people read it, some people don't. You enter the meeting and then people get mad at the people who haven't read it and eventually you have different information. Everyone's working off of different information. So you create a document. We do a Google Doc because that's what we use. Basically something where you write down your agenda, what you want to talk about, the meat of the discussion. So 
what the background information, what you've learned, and then some discussion questions. Once you have that, people then, you enter the meeting, you start reading it. Everyone starts to read the document. What we do with Google Docs is since it allows collaborative commenting, I can comment and then somebody else can comment on my comment in parallel. And what that helps to do is it all these side conversations that might exist just get funneled into these, these comments. So for instance, you might have a specific question about an acronym or about you want to learn more about some specific experiment or some specific data point, you can then ask that question in comments. And then once everyone's done reading, after a certain period of time, depending on how long the doc is, there's a facilitator in the meeting who stops and says, like, okay, it seems like everyone's done reading. Let's go through the questions synthesizes the, the comments and picks out what's most important to discuss based on what people have commented, what the main topics of discussion were, and then guides the rest of the, of the meeting in a non-silent way to actually talk about those most important things. In your document, you show one meeting that must have 60 people in it. Yeah. Do you find there's an upper limit to how big you can make this? So I've done, I've been pushing the boundaries a little bit to see where, where it breaks. We regularly do meetings with 60 to 80 people in it. Uh, these are more cadence meetings to update a broad group on various things. And we find that it scales really well. It actually scales much better because people can, again, people can comment on the side. And so in traditional meetings and loud meetings, what ends up happening is one person speaks at a time and sort of takes the talking stick, if you will, and like walks around. Most people can't contribute and a large meeting ends up being really wasteful, right? And so that's why people have this aversion to anything that's a large meeting because it just feels like a big waste of everybody's time since only one person can talk at a time. What ends up happening with, uh, with silent meetings and with comments is everyone can comment in parallel. You actually have the opposite problem, which is you get too much engagement, too many people contributing. Your limiting factor is more how much can you, how much comments do you really want and how much input do you want from people? But I found it scales really well. How would you describe the energy flow from it? Because I guess... The immediate thing that you think when you're thinking about a silent meeting is you think, is that an energy suck? But actually, the the state for most people in vocal meetings is silence, right? Where they're sort of, they're managing their state. Is is there a difference in how people leave leave the room after a silent meeting? Yeah, I find, it's a great question. I, I find there's a couple different changes in energy from these meetings. They're definitely different. Um, I think there is a lot less frustration. So loud meetings are typically, can be frustrating, because the person is speaking very slowly or the topic, something that people already know about, or there's people have to follow the same soundtrack, if you will, for the entire thing. Often the, with rare exceptions, most meetings end up being very frustrating. And I think this is why people hate meetings. In silent meetings, what I've noticed is at the beginning, because you have to read and you have to process information, it actually becomes much more cognitively intense. You have to actually think a lot more. <laughs> Right. So you have to, in normal meetings, you can sort of lean back and just let somebody talk to some degree. Here, you actually have to process information, which makes them a little bit more consuming. One of the big determinants, though, of the overall energy of the meeting is the facilitator role. And so that's where the facilitator almost, I think in most meetings is important, but it's particularly important in a silent meeting because the facilitator can really tie everything together and pull out the most important topics of discussion that really will engage the room. A good facilitator can dramatically alter the energy of the room and, and the energy of the meeting and vice versa, right? A bad facilitator can really sort of drag it down. So I think that that's a key role. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the person who facilitates my main meeting on this her contribution is remarkable because, yeah, she's she's often on the fly synthesizing yeah. in aggregate what are the two big themes that everyone wants to talk about. And often it's, it's about spotting that trend. So her yeah. role is so vital. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. Are there any cautionary notes you'd give for people? My, my experience when we first did a, a silent meeting was that the first two or three are fairly awkward because we were so familiar with the other version. Our learning was stick with it because that awkwardness, it goes very quickly once yeah. you become comfortable. I think there's definitely a, a ramp up period until you feel comfortable with them. I think the facilitator role is something a lot of people miss. They'll often go through every comment or they'll sort of get stuck in the weeds a little bit. So I think pulling it out to the most important topics of discussion is something is a second point. I see the third is that silent meetings don't solve everything. Right? They solve a lot of pieces. I find one of the main ones is at, at the end of a silent meeting, you can have lots of great discussion, but people still have to have, make a decision. You still need to drive it to a close and silent meetings aren't going to solve that for you. Right? It just makes it clearer that you need someone in the room. It needs to be clear what you're discussing and with what purpose, right? And so it doesn't solve everything. It just provides a better forum for getting for discussing important topics and then getting to good decisions. You, I guess what we've we've done along the way, and I just want to sort of clarify as we we end, is that we've talked about silent meetings where then we've said that there is discussion. So, so the meeting doesn't always have to be completely silent. Definitely the one I have has about 25 minutes of silence and then we talk. Some of yours have been closer to 100% silent, haven't they? Is that right? Yeah, it, it really varies. It depends how much meeting discussion there is. So I have meetings that are 30 minutes where 20 of the 30 are silent because it's mostly an update and mostly consuming information. There are other meetings where it's an hour, but you'll have 15 minutes of silence. And the reality, it's because there's so many meaty points of discussion that really merit a good in live discussion on, on various topics. And so I'd say it, you, you have to flex it a little bit depending on how much information you want people to process versus how much you're, you want to spend on tackling some thorny issues. Has it changed anything about the outcome of business situations? Yeah, I think, I think it really changes the dynamics of meetings. I've, I've talked to a number of engineers that now run their meetings this way. Uh, we're a little bit scared of doing this at the beginning, but then they, they tried it and they asked everyone in their team after, hey, do you prefer this new silent meeting approach or what we were doing before? And uh, across the board, people, people prefer, prefer this new approach. It avoids the pro so many of the problems that loud meetings exhibit around one person being super loud and just clogging everything. My only cautionary tale is it's hard to go back to loud meetings after you're done silent meetings. Um, they just seem so inefficient and so, so boring, and it's very hard to go back. Yeah, the interesting thing I've observed is that there is a lot more work up front for someone to get like a, a document together or to get something together. So they're especially helpful if you're running a specific project or you're, you're doing something that needs to be making weekly progress and there's someone running that. I find them a little bit harder when they are weekly meetings where there isn't necessarily someone who's got several hours to prepare a lot of stuff. In fact, we use the Google Doc format for, for one of our, meet, our meeting there where we, we all put in our updates you know, and we probably write eight lines of text each. And so that's the, the way that we share them. But I think you do need to be a bit more intentional about what the content's going to be and yeah. how you're bringing it. And you can, it's a great point. So you can, I'm sure people can innovate all their, their different, whatever works best for them. Some of the meetings I have are, are, as you mentioned, like broader reviews that have a specific person that puts together a big document, right? For some, from some broader strategy. But then I also have my weekly meeting with my team where we don't prepare any of it. We sit down and everybody updates live. 
and everybody adds their updates and they add, I think our current format is, what are you most excited about? What did you learn? And what are your blockers? Right. And everyone's typing live and then commenting live. And then we spent the rest of the discussion just talking about whatever the main topics are, similar to normal silent meetings. But there's no prep to it that we use the meeting itself to prep. You know, one of the things I didn't mention about silent meetings is because they're so efficient, often they're they end ahead of time. Like it's a, it's a very efficient format to have these discussions. It's definitely made a big impact in my life and my teams. And I'm excited to sort of try it out different places. I'm curious about could you do this? How much could you do this for conferences? How much could you do this for large groups of people? I mean, it's, it's all about you have groups. A lot of times you're bringing together a large group of smart people that you've assembled for a purpose. How do you really make the most of it? And I think this is one way, but I'm, I'm excited to see how it develops. If anyone's interested, where could they find out more? Yeah, so I wrote a blog post on this called The Silent Meeting Manifesto. I tried to summarize it all there, and I think that's, that's a great starting point. There's a few other links there, but that's a good place to start. I'm so grateful for you taking the time. Thank you, man. Thank you. No, no, thank you. Thanks so much for David interrupting his lunch one day last week. Look, please do this for me. Try a silent meeting. Read David's Medium post. Maybe download it for a few pence on Amazon. There's a Kindle version. And then tweet us how it goes. Tag me, tag at Gasca, G-A-S-C-A, and tell us how you got on. I think what David's brilliantly articulated is a simple way for us to reinvent something that's definitely broken. And I think the advent of collaborative docs, whether you use Google Docs or whether you use other online products, the collaboration that these things have facilitated has actually allowed us to reinvent what is a centuries-old format. It's worth saying if you do read David's original Medium post, it gives a couple of important adages. You shouldn't do a silent meeting in a situation, say, where you need social interaction. You know, if, if you need social interaction, he says, create something that stimulates social interaction. Or don't do something where you're needing inspiration. If you're looking for something like a TED Talk, then do a TED Talk. But in other circumstances, I'd love to hear of how people have tried a silent meeting. Today's episode is brought to you in association with Perkbox. I've been fascinated with Perkbox. Their mission is to help employees live better in life and in work. And the way they've set about doing that is by creating a platform with 200 exclusive employee benefits. And these are across store discounts, healthcare, recognition incentives. There's a whole array of different things. It was impressive just the vastness of what they offer. Perkbox is designed to give everyone everything they need to perform at work, improving motivation, productivity and staff retention. Perkbox helps employees live better in life and in work. Find out more, go to perkbox.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Next up, I chat to Dr. Stephen Rogelberg. He's an award-winning researcher, speaker, and management professor at the University of North Carolina. He also consults for a lot of U.S. organizations, and he's just written an acclaimed book about, yeah, meetings. I wanted to get Stephen's view about what we can do about fixing this big part of our lives. Stephen, thanks so much for giving me this time today. You're my, uh, you're going to be my meeting doctor because you've written this book called The Surprising Science of Meetings, which is the end product of a lot of hard work, including original research. Do you want, do you want to give me a sense of how you did the research for the book? In so many different ways. You know, the research was done by having um, employees keep diaries where they would record, you know, their daily meeting experiences, where they would indicate how they felt about their day. So you often have diary-based studies. These diaries could be even um, after each and every meeting. So we have surveys, diaries, and we've even done experiments in the lab where we bring people in and we manipulate something. So for example, we manipulate lateness to meetings to see how it affects the meeting itself. So there's lots of different methodologies that can be done to learn about this topic. You even went as far as to work out the cost of meetings, both in terms of money and time. Go on, give us the numbers. What's the time? What's the cost? So in the US, it was $1.4 trillion. You know, we study executives and finding 30 hours a week of meetings is not at all a surprise. Wow. And you told me that the UK is the worst country in the world. What were the numbers for the UK again? I don't have the exact data, but I did this work with uh, Doodle and UK came up at the top in terms of the most per capita. You know, there are over 100 million meetings a day uh, across the globe. In the US alone, there's 55 million meetings a day. It's just an unbelievable phenomenon. It's incredible how much time is invested in meetings and really how little thought is given to it. From your book, you say uh, a few of us think that the meetings we're responsible for are the best ones. What's the story there? Well, first, I should, I should say managers think their meetings are effective, right. but not necessarily other managers' meetings. Um, yeah, so we we know that humans have this better than average kind of phenomenon um, that it, it that exists, right? We all think we're better than average when it comes to driving, better than average when it comes to relationships. We just have this inflated self-perception, but it definitely emerges in meetings. Uh, you survey people on the way out of a meeting and typically the leader definitely feels, hey, this was a pretty good use of time, but clearly when you look at people's frustration, there's a misalignment. So there's this blind spot that is just part of human nature. But when you put this together with the fact that research suggests that only around 20% of leaders ever receive any training on meetings, right? That becomes this two ends of creating a big problem, right? So we don't necessarily know what it means to run an effective meeting. So our self-perception is off, but we don't necessarily know better. And we just recycle bad practices that we see others do. 
because you're not a purist. I think you quoted Peter Drucker, the sort of marketing guru, and he said meetings are a symptom of a bad organisation. The fewer the meetings, the better. And and I think instinctively that's always been my visceral response. But you you don't believe that. You you believe that we can fix this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, let's recognise that a world without meetings is much more problematic. Uh, meetings are where cooperation, coordination, consensus, decision-making, in many regards, organizational democracy takes place in meetings. So the elimination of meetings is a false goal. The elimination of bad meetings is the true goal. And it can be done with science. As a meeting scientist, what's most exciting to me is that it signals that there's truly an appetite for trying to solve meetings, that we just don't have to accept bad meetings as a way of life. Right. So so we're going to go through a few um, a few different methodologies that you suggest that might help us solve things. So the first one that we've probably seen that's become a little bit more popular and certainly discussed more is this notion of a stand-up meeting. Can you talk us through when a stand-up meeting might work, what the right length for that is? When would you use it? So first, let me give you an overall kind of a statement that the research supports a leader making choices and thinking carefully about what a meeting should look like. A standing meeting is an option to leaders, and definitely it's not an option that you should always take. The data on standing meetings are quite good. Um, They tend to yield the same levels of productivity, but in nearly half as much time. So that's a real positive. But standing meetings do need to be shorter. They can be uncomfortable for folks. So sometimes you have to have kind of some high stools. You know, if individuals really differ in heights, a standing meeting can kind of be problematic from a power dynamic. But with that all being said, there are absolutely times where you can imagine a leader saying, hey, I have a 15-minute meeting. Um, you know, everyone seems low energy. Bam, let's do it standing up. And so what's what's the reason that we would do it standing up? Is it because the mere discomfort of standing makes us more abbreviated in, in our communication? Or is it because it channels adrenaline in our system? What's the reason? I would posit it's more about discomfort and it's more about multitasking. It's much more difficult to engage in multitasking types of behaviors when you're standing, right? You can't be on your laptop, for example. So this level of discomfort, the inability to multitask brings presence and focus. And isn't that all we really want as meeting leaders? We want presence and focus. And people, when people are present and focused, we get stuff done. Because I think the, the thing that's interesting is that the 15 minutes that generally standing meetings seem to be most effective at is just a good reminder that meetings can quite often just expand to fill the time available. And I think you talked about Parkinson's law. Do you want to explain Parkinson's law for us about how meetings just expand into the time? So first of all, you know, we know that the most standard meeting time is an hour. And Parkinson's law is the idea that work expands to whatever time is allotted to it. So if you schedule one hour, magically it will take one hour, but we can use this for our advantage. If we schedule a meeting for 50 minutes, it's gonna take 50 minutes. Schedule for 48, it will take 48. So those leaders who are intentional, think carefully about the the amount of time for the topic, they're gonna be giving the best gift of anything 
back to people. And that's the gift of time. And it it seems interesting, actually, because this is one of the themes that you talk about, that you talk about. Actually, it's that unpredictability. It's the fact that when we vary things, that's when we seem to find meetings more rewarding. And it might be as mundane as asking people to sit in different seats or standing meetings down, cancelling meetings, trying to bring a, a degree of flexibility, versatility and freshness to, to things that often we find ourselves getting into a rut about. Exactly. Well said. Um, if you go back to that number I said earlier of 100 million plus meetings a day in the US, if you analyze those meetings, despite the fact that they're taking places in different countries, in different organizations, they're more similar than they are different. People are basically doing the same thing. And that just gets old, it gets stale, it gets boring, and it just doesn't help bring the energy. So to the extent that we can mix things up, you know, it's a greater likelihood that people will be more curious, more engaged, and they'll appreciate the fact that you're actually thinking about the meeting that you're just not defaulting to the same standard stuff. Now, the thing that you you said that's really intriguing and fascinating is that we often find ourselves hearing from MBA graduates and they say, you know, there's no problem with meetings. You just need a good agenda. So tell me this. Is that true? Is a meeting fixed with a good agenda? It is not. The chapter in my book is the, the title of the chapter is Agendas are a Hollow Crutch. Having agendas in of themselves don't do anything to fix meetings. But really, if you stop and think for a moment, this shouldn't surprise us, right? A very large percentage of agendas are merely recycled, meeting to meeting, but the only thing changed is the date. Again, if you stop and think, you, you realize that having an agenda doesn't really mean as much as, well, what's on the agenda? Is it really meaningful? Did you ask others for input into the agenda? How did you facilitate discussion of those agenda items? That's what really matters to folks, not just having this pretend solution. In fact, you know, most meeting books, you know, they, they say, okay, step one, have an agenda. And this creates this false sense of security, right? So many people think that, oh, hey, I'm good at this. I have an agenda. Yeah. And that's just a false narrative. Yeah, because it strikes me from what you said and, and from my own instinct that a meeting works best when it's an in, a series of interactions where it's a exchange of information rather than a diarized 12 minutes for John to talk about this, 12 minutes for Janet to talk about that. You, you describe meetings as interactions and there seems to be a lot of truth in that. Yeah, I, if the meeting is truly just going to be a bunch of one-way communication, there are alternatives, right? There are alternative mechanisms for getting that information out, right? You can obviously write it as a memo. You could do a quick podcast, right? You can video yourself communicating to your people, and they're going to really appreciate that because they can actually listen to your words when it's convenient, when it's not interrupting them from what they were doing. They can listen to it at time and a half speed, because humans can process information often faster than someone speaks. So if your agenda is filled with one-way information items, gosh, you have to stop and think for a second. You know, am I just wasting people's time? And one um, technique um, that I'll, I'll, I'd love to mention, and I talk about this in the book, and I spend I've spent a lot more time talking about it afterwards because it's really resonated with folks. Is this idea of instead of structuring your agenda as a set of topics? 
consider structuring your agenda as a set of questions to be answered. When you frame it as a set of questions to be answered, by very nature, by the very nature, a question requires interaction, right? So as a meeting leader now, you're going to be much more thoughtful. Why am I truly bringing folks together? Coming up with questions really solidifies that. Also, by developing questions, you have a better sense of who truly needs to be there because they're relevant to the questions. You have a better sense if the meeting's been successful because the questions have been answered. And if you just can't think of any questions, perhaps you don't need them. To answer a few more of the critical questions that I think really go to the heart of, of meetings. So firstly, what, what's the ideal meeting size? There is not an ideal meeting size, but we do know that if the meeting is going to require true discussion, you really want to have eight or less people um, because it's just hard to facilitate a meaningful conversation. Once you pass eight people, that leader has to be an incredibly skilled facilitator, and most of those people aren't. If you're just about, if it's just about getting out information. It doesn't really matter how large it is. Quite often, it, meetings and the attendance of meetings is about status. It's about people feeling like I earned my place to be at part part of that meeting. You said something in your book about how Steve Jobs would disinvite people from meetings, <laughs> and and his reputation, I think, as a consequence, was that he was quite a sort of abrupt, curt person. But how would the rest of us get down to this magical eight number if if there's more than that in a meeting? It's a great question, and it's a really important topic. You know, one of the things that we find in our research is that while people complain about meetings, one thing that concerns them just as much is not being invited to a meeting. Um, we're worried when we're not invited to a meeting. We're worried that maybe we don't matter, um, that we're just lesser important. So this is an important thing to recognize. But at the same time, people definitely want more time. So what I encourage meeting leaders to do is when they think about what they're trying to accomplish in the meeting, identify who are the core individuals. And those aren't usually hard to figure out. We know who really needs to be there. Where we get ourselves in trouble is more these secondary people, these people who are nice to have, but really not essential. For those secondary people, we need to take another step. Instead of just having them come to the meeting, we can engage with them before the meeting. We could say, hey, we're having a meeting, here are the various topics. I know you touch these topics, but I'm afraid it's not gonna honor your time. If you have input, I would love to hear it. I'm gonna promise you that I'm gonna give you the minutes after the meeting, and then down the road, if you wanna come to any future meetings, you're more than welcome. If you lay it out like that for people, their response is, thank you, I'm good. You have your meeting. They feel secure that they were being considered. They feel secure that they're going to be able to see the outcomes of the meeting and revisit their decision. So you just work to create a new culture, right? This culture of keeping meetings lean because we know from the research that meetings themselves can be problematic, but big meetings are a big mess. So anything that we can do to keep our meetings lean, anything that we can do to give people back time. That's a great leader. Because quite often what happens is meetings are big. The people at the fringes of meetings pull out their devices, whether it's phones or laptops. It changes the energy in the room. We sort of find ourselves in this situation where it seems like no one's really paying attention to what's going on. Do you have any take on what's the right or the rights and wrongs when it comes to technology? Multitasking is clearly a problem for meetings. Um, it typically is a symptom of a 
unfocused meeting or a meeting that lacks real critical importance is typically a symptom of a meeting that's bloated in size. Although I did hear you say that um, there was one organization that had introduced coloring books. So, so that it's, it seems like it's not all activity that's bad. That's, that helps with attentive listening. Is that right? What I want to avoid is someone engaging cognitively strongly in another activity when they're supposed to be focused on the meeting. So it appears that when we doodle or color, it's really not taking us into a whole nother location. It's just allowing us to perhaps be more present and mindful. I think that the, kind of the overall takeaway is we want to recognize that multitasking is typically, typically symptomatic of a poorly designed meeting. And multitasking cr does create a withdrawal and it's contagious. So once some people start to multitask, it becomes a contagion that affects the entire group experience. So far better to reduce the number of people in the meeting, make sure they're all there to participate, for, to facilitate the discussion between a, that smaller number. There's obviously been a an evolution in some of the styles. One of the things you mentioned in the book really intrigued me because I've sort of almost considered this idea but never done it. And it's the idea of magic time, the idea of sort of just having time on the clock where you're all going to be free. And it might be that the interaction that's needed in that time is two of you get together for a conversation. What would you add to that? And how have you seen people use magic time? So I, I love this concept. Um, often magic time is paired with a huddle. So when you think about teams getting together for 10 minutes to quickly get alignment, to do a quick scan of the day, that's really what a huddle is about. It's about the here and now and bringing a team together to kind of all get on the same page. But you still want teams to focus on larger strategic issues. And those are the types of things that can be parked in magic time. So magic time is an agreed upon time that everyone hold sacred, that if there are issues that have accumulated, then the team meets to go through these strategic and important issues. But if there aren't, then the team just doesn't meet during that time. But there's something very powerful to know that everyone's available, everyone's committed this window to be for the team to talk about strategic issues. I love it. What would happen? You would tell people you're standing down magic time if it wasn't used, or you would just use it as a quick one-to-one -one with someone if that was what was required? Yeah, all of the above. You have that flexibility. But um, so it could be the case that the strategic item involves everyone. Great. You know, everyone's available. It could be the case that it only involves a few people uh, or it could be the case that you cancel it. The, the fact is, there's something very powerful to, about knowing that your entire team is committed to this. Now, the, probably the, the, the one thing that we've seen go up a lot in the last five, six years is the online meeting, the, the sort of the video chat meeting or a call where people dial in. And I think we all know that the best version of ourselves sits there attentively, gazing at the screen, giving full attention and being fully consumed as if we're in the room. And we also know that the worst version of ourselves often turns up to those meetings. And because people can't see what we're doing, we have our devices out or we're not really paying attention. We've got our microphone on mute, so we're tapping away. Describe to me a solution that might help us get overcome these these often wretched feeling meetings that where we're dialing into Google Hangouts or Zoom calls. When you ask people what's the least effective meeting type, the remote meeting emerges as the least effective. If you ask people what meeting type do you most prefer to attend, 
they often say the remote meeting, right. right? So this is a weird juxtaposition. And the reason is so they can multitask, so they can do other things. And that's a horrible state of affairs. So we just have to remember that when we're having a remote meeting, the importance of us being an excellent facilitator gets dialed up so much higher. We have to be much more intentional, much more thoughtful. We truly have to embrace our role as a facilitator. We have to be even more careful about meeting size. So all the issues that we talked about continue to take on even, they take on even more importance. But at the same time, there's other, there are some unique things that we could do. So first of all, we can insist upon video-based, um, right? When, when the remote call is video-based, a lot, quite a bit of the dysfunction goes away because people are seen. I have something in my book that's controversial, but I didn't mean it to be controversial, which is this idea of banning the mute button. Now, I didn't really mean to ban the mute button all the time, but I, what I like this, why I put it in there to be provocative is if people choose a quiet space to be in, they shouldn't need the mute button, right? If people are going to be fully present for a meeting, which is what we require those in the you know an actual physical location to be, they shouldn't need the mute button, right? They don't need to be walking their dog during the meeting. They don't need to be eating lunch during the meeting. So I like this idea of challenging people to potentially ban the mute button so that focus is required. Focus and being in a quiet, conducive space is required. Also, meeting leaders need to call on people by name. Even if you feel like you know people, just keep calling out names. Create that identifiability because sometimes when people are remote, when they're on a screen, they start to think that they're not truly there and that they don't have to be fully present. But by constantly calling out people by name, then they have no choice but to be there. And you should keep a little tally of who's talking and who's not talking. If I haven't heard from Gordon, I'm going to say, hey, Gordon, I haven't heard from you. What do you think about this? Thank you to Stephen Rogelberg. His book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, is out now. If you have a meeting of death, it could be a, a great anonymous gift for your boss. If you've got a bad meeting, this could be the thing you need. Thanks to our amazing guests today, uh, David Gaskans and Stephen Rogelberg. The interesting thing for me was that the, there were two, I think, sort of eye-catching different formats for meetings. David Gasker's execution plan of silent meetings, I think he's detailed and thoughtful. So you're going to be able to sort of pick that up and try it straight away. Tweet me if you try one. Tag me or tag at Gasker with your experience. And from the, the chat with Stephen Rogelberg, I really enjoyed his idea of magic time. The idea that a team sets aside time for each other, but doesn't necessarily take the form of a meeting. I love it. Buzzing off those two. Next week, I've got an interview about the lies we tell ourselves about work. I think you're going to find that real fun. And as I mentioned at the outset, we've got some really good stuff coming up about uh, neuroscience, about WeWork. WeWork are in the news a lot at the moment. I wanted to understand what it's like to work in a WeWork and what does it do for your culture. Fingers crossed. I've also got forthcoming a discussion with Pippa Grange, who's the, the director of culture at the England men's football team. So that should be coming up in the next few weeks. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, 
edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.